Hey everybody, this is Jim from faithtestedbyfire.com, and you are listening to the Faith Tested by Fire podcast. All right, welcome back everyone. It is really good to be here with you today. This is Jim. I am so sorry that it's been so long since the last podcast episode, and I always tell myself I'm going to focus and make more episodes after I complete the previous episode, and sometimes... Life, just to be honest, can be a little overwhelming sometimes with just having things to do. And one of the things that I thought to myself when I started this podcast was that in one way, I really appreciate when people are consistent when they do things week after week after week. In other ways, especially when we're talking about the kind of content that I talk about here, we're talking about spiritual things, about God, about the tests and the trials of life and our place in them. I really want to make sure that when I sit down to do these podcasts that I'm not just kind of filling in with another episode because it's on the schedule to do so. I want to make sure that my heart is in the right place and that I really have something that's worthwhile for you. And so I see I see both sides to it, really. I see the uh, necessity of consistency, but I also see the necessity of making sure that when you do stand up to speak, that what's coming out of your mouth is truly from the heart and truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a difficult balance sometimes. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, yeah, we've had an incredible year, 2020, probably one of those times that, um, and I know that even in the midst of the tests and trials of life, good things spring forth. And sometimes in the middle of the fire is what ultimately turns out to be a new beginning forming. But one of the scriptures that caught my attention again the other day is found in Second Peter chapter um, 2 and verse 7. Um, this is from the Berean Study Bible. It says, If he condemned, condemned, he meaning God, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes as an example of what is coming on the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I'm just going to stop right there. So I like to talk to people in my family regularly and uh, in these conversations, one of the things that has been coming out with increasing consistency is just how the people around me, the, the people, uh, people of faith, people trying to walk that straight and narrow path, how they're experiencing torment in their soul day after day by all of the deeds that we see happening in the media. And it's almost impossible to escape 100%. I know for myself, I work online, and so what I do is um, I have a business that builds uh, websites and does internet marketing for offline local businesses, and I've been doing that for a number of years, uh, along with some other uh, digital online businesses. So I've been on, I'm in the online space quite regularly, and uh, but I don't have a TV hooked up to uh, you know cable, so I don't see the news every night. However. I do see the news clippings on channels like Facebook and things like that, and or I should say YouTube. So I do keep up with what's happening, and I also do visit some news websites. And, and I can see both sides of the argument. I can see that you don't want to be involved. You know, the, the Bible says that um, 
that when a person warreth, one of God's people, we're talking about spiritual warfare, uh, they don't entangle themselves with the affairs of this world. And the analogy is of a soldier, right? The, the soldier doesn't get entangled with civilian affairs. The soldier focuses on the fight that is before him or her. And But, but the thing is, and, and I totally understand and believe that. I mean, that's what the Bible says. But on the other side, the fight has broken off into a civilian space, I guess you could say, where we're seeing it all the time. Now, I don't live in a big city. I know if I lived in a city like a New York or an L.A. or a Portland, then I would be experiencing firsthand um, what it would be like to be close to where there's riots and looting and things of that nature. And so this concept of having your soul vexed, sometimes that happens because you're actually living in a place like Lot was, for an example, when he was right in the midst of the evil that was there. And so you might just think from one standpoint, well, if I was living in a place like that, I would move. But just understand that um, the word of God needs to be where, uh, where the people need it the most. Remember, Jesus said how it's the sick that need a physician, not those who are whole. And so the people that need the gospel the most, the people that need God in their lives the most are the people that have uh, no meaning or purpose in their life. And so they find a meaning or purpose that has violence at its center. And we know that the Bible warns against living by the sword. It, li- it warns against we reap what we sow. And, uh, and these people that are caught who are blinded to the truth, to the light, see what we call righteousness as being in opposition to them, as, as being an enemy. And so I look back at Jesus as the example that he was lied about and he was hit and he just he did not respond back in kind. And, and you just think about the kind of control that it would take that if somebody's spreading lies about you and talking evil about you, and, that, and it seems like the media has become a platform more or less for evil in our time, in our era. But we also see the counter to that. We see the counter springing up as uh, more people, some believers and some not. And what I mean by that is it, there are people that will become the people of God who aren't there yet. They're in the process. So if you've been a believer for some time, maybe you find it hard to remember <laughs> what it was like beforehand. And some of you haven't really been in this place for all that long, so it's all new and it's all it's all fresh to you. But, um, yeah, we live in a world that the Bible says through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of heaven, and we see it compounding here in in these last times, I don't really know if I had to guess, and, and I think we all kind of guess on the inside, how close are we? How really far are we to the end? And I, I look at it from uh, a personal perspective more than a worldwide perspective. I know all things being equal. I personally, I'm in, in my 50s now, and I know that, okay, I probably am past the halfway point. Who knows? Maybe not. But I know I'm getting close to the end as far as it plays out in my own life. And that's one of the things that, you know, it's hard to not think about sometimes. And and I know that if it happens in my lifetime, well, then it happens in my lifetime if the whole story ends there. But I already know how the story ends. 
If you read in the book of Revelation, right at the very end, you see that the there's a great white throne judgment, and then there is a new heavens and a new earth. So I'm not going to get into what happens first, what happens second, or any of that. I'm just saying the general end of the story is um, God's people win, and the unrighteous are judged, and, and that's it. And this whole thing is wrapped up, and there's a, a brand new story that is beginning. And it feels good to hear that and to remind yourself of that because sometimes all you're left with is what you're seeing online or what you're hearing or what you're watching on the television or what you hear your friends talking about. It's hard to maintain a a distance sometimes. They keep on pulling you back in. But, um, you know, so anyway, what I want to talk about today, I want to change gears just a little bit and talk about... um, well, let me just jump right in and just start talking about it. Uh, in Luke chapter 17, I'm going to start in, um, let's see here, verse 12. It says, this is the New King James Version. It says, then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers, who stood afar off. So if you're not familiar with Bible times, leprosy, if you've ever seen it in the movies or pictures of it in real life, it's basically like parts of the body begin to decay and, and break off and fall off and rot off. And those people were considered to be unclean. I think we can relate to what it means to have that concept of unclean because we have this new social distancing aspect that's entered into our society. Where if you don't know people, maybe you don't really feel comfortable, especially if there's a group of people being too close to them because of a threat that's unseen. However, in this time, there was a threat that was quite visible. It was called leprosy. It's still around today, although it's not as as prevalent as it used to be. And so that's why these people were standing afar off. They were distancing. Now, according to the law of the time, if they got too close, they could have been stoned to death. And there were other types of ailments. You can read about the woman with the issue of blood that Jesus healed. That was another example of uncleanness, uncleanliness, and the law basically allowing for somebody who would get close to infect other people with that, whatever the disease was, could be stoned to death according to the law. So they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, Master, have mercy on us. Think about that for a minute. Think about that statement. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So I'm assuming right there that in that, in that one basic statement that they all cried out, what were they looking for? What was mercy in their estimation, in their opinion? Mercy was take a look at us, have compassion on us. We can use the word mercy and compassion almost interchangeably. Because a compassionate person is also a merciful person. And a merciful person is someone that has compassion. And so those two terms basically are two sides to the same coin. So they said, Jesus, have mercy on us. Now, just imagine that. Now, a lot of people at that time, because of Jesus's reputation that had gone out just far and wide. I mean, you you would have to literally be living under a rock not to know who Jesus of Nazareth is once his ministry got underway. I mean, all kinds of miracles were happening. Multitudes of people healed, fed. These people, these 10 lepers, these 10 men, knew about Jesus. They knew about his reputation. They knew about his power. 
And why were they asking for mercy? Well, obviously they wanted to be healed. But notice how they approached him. People in, in that time that had leprosy were basically considered to be quote-unquote sinners by the general public. In other words, there was a belief at the time, and this belief is still here today, that if you're suffering some kind of a sickness, it's because there was some kind of sin in your life. Now, we, we know from other scriptures that God's people also perish for a lack of knowledge. So not just uh, sin. People suffer for a variety of reasons. Some people suffer because of uh, overwhelmed by fear. Some people are over, overrun by sin or lusts. And, and they suffer for different, di different things happen for, for different reasons, of course. I don't think anybody would, would argue with that. But that didn't stop these people who were basically seen as sinners to come before God, come before Jesus and say, have mercy on us. In other words, look at, look at the situation we're in. Help us. Now, here's an interesting thing. You can read all of the accounts of people coming to Jesus looking for help. And it's amazing how many times they came asking for mercy. I'll read some more mercy scriptures in, in, in just a minute. But let, let's finish this story. In verse 14, it says, So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. Right. So obviously, you can't go and show yourself to the priest if you're a leper because you've already been pronounced a leper. But if you're healed, you could go show yourself to the priest and get a, uh, I guess you would call a, a, a certificate or be certified as clean by the uh, priests. And then you can become part of society again. You could get on with your life. Imagine that. I, I'm struggling to come up with something in our modern time, but you know there's certain certifications that will get you places that you can't get without a certification. Well, imagine just being uncertified to, to live in basic society and being an outcast, living with other outcasts. And then imagine having yourself recertified. That Maybe prison might be the closest thing to it. I don't know. But he said, go show yourself to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Well, here's the thing. They started their journey. When they started their journey, they were still lepers. Right? So, and somewhere between the time they left and the time they got there, they were healed. And then it says in verse 15, and one of them, when he saw he was healed, notice that. When he noticed he was healed, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorifying God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the other nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Well, it was faith that caused him to begin the journey to go show himself to the priest. But two things here. The lepers at that point in life, we're at the, at the bottom of the bottom as far as their circumstances go. If you get any lower, you're dead, right? So they were at, the, at this, about as low as you could go and still be living. You know, ultimately, leprosy will kill you. And so the go show yourself to the priest meant they took some kind of action even though they didn't see immediate result. They weren't healed immediately. They were healed as they went. 
but they did what Jesus said to do. Now, there's two things that I, I want to talk about here. Number one is the fact that how they approached Jesus, how they approached God. And number two was the fact that they weren't waiting to see the answer before going showing to them and show themselves to the to the priest. In other words, if they showed up to the priest to show themselves, they risked losing their lives. So the, it wasn't just like a journey that didn't have some kind of temptation to fear that presented itself along with it. You know, sometimes we're in a situation where you can pray for something and you can ask for help, but if you don't get it, you do have other options. And then there's times where you have no option at all, whereas if if the prayer is not heard and answered, you're going to face a definite loss. And yet we have even other times where people have prayed about things for years. This is one of the things that used to bother me quite a bit. Because I would look at someone that I knew, and it seemed like they were blessed in every area of their life, but except there was always one area that was a trouble spot for them. And it differed from person to person. So this one person that would, was able to receive healing from a physical disease, for some reason they always struggled in the area of finances. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And it seems like they were always just getting by. And, and then there was other examples of people that they struggled. They didn't struggle with their finances. They were blessed there, but they were always struggling with poor health. In other words, there were things that they had in their life that, wow, you think to yourself, if Jesus were there in person and this person asked for help, they would definitely get a result. They would definitely get an answer. And it seemed like certain people, their faith is just tested. It seems like everyone has their faith tested by fire in one area or another, that there's no really getting around that. And when I started thinking about that, I was reminded of the scripture that says, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of heaven. But it seems like certain people have their tribulation or their testing in a certain area more so than others. And when you hear that, when you hear that through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to pair that with other scriptures like, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, that's just saying that when I draw my last breath out of my mouth, if I place my faith in Jesus, that I'm going to step out of this temporary, temporal world into the glory world, and there I have total victory. And there is something to be said about that, but think back about all of the stories that we've seen from the book of Genesis all the way through the Bible. The stories that encourage us, the stories that are told over and over again involve people that overcame here in this lifetime. They got the victory before they left this physical body. Think about that for a minute. Now, sometimes, especially if you're suffering, it becomes easy to just accept that as your lot in life. And I used to think that about people like the apostles, about how many apostles were uh, martyred for their belief. I know not all of them were. Like, the, for example, John is a good example of that. And I sometimes I, I used to see that as, as a, a defeat. 
And I used to, I, part of me would identify with that. And I would think, well, you know, there's just some victories we won't have in this lifetime. We have to wait until we get around the other side. But then I think about things like what Jesus said. And he said that no man takes his life from me. I lay it down. And I think to myself, none of these uh, people that, uh, at least according to tradition, to the stories that I've heard, these apostles, none of them went kicking and screaming into what we might call martyrdom today. No, they, they literally laid down their lives. And in some cases, maybe they just thought it wasn't worth fighting for. It wasn't worth fighting to live if you finished your course. You know what the Bible says? It's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And there is a special crown for those who have laid down their lives. I think there's a, quite a difference between laying down your life and having someone take it from you. Laying down your life to me kind of tells me that you had a choice in the matter, like somebody didn't make the choice for you. And in such a way, it does glorify God, because if you are willing to die for your testimony in Jesus, how, how much stronger of a testimony could you have? Think about Peter as a good example of this. He denied Jesus at one point three times. And Jesus prophesied that would happen. But then he said, you know, when you're old, when you're young, you went wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, someone else will gird you, speaking about what manner of death he would die. But it also says on what manner of death he would glorify God. So probably all he would have to have done to avoid martyrdom is to renounce his faith in Jesus, just like he did earlier in his life. And, and if you read the accounts of what happened with these people, in secular history, that's basically what happened. You, you have the option. You can renounce your faith and live, or you can hold fast to it and die. And that was their final testimony after their course was finished. So in other words, it was just like what Jesus did after he entered Jerusalem and the people were crying out, Hosanna in the highest. You know, the king is coming. He came riding in on, on the donkey. And the voice spoke from heaven when he was in there at the temple and said, this is my son and who I am well pleased. That signified, if you read the Gospels closely, where Jesus said his time had come. In other words, now he was going to be handed over to be crucified. And his time couldn't have come unless God allowed it. God had a bigger uh, plan in it. Uh, I guess the reason why, I'm, of, of course, our salvation and the destruction of, of the works of the enemy, of the kingdom of darkness, and the final judgment. Everything happened right there at the cross and at the resurrection. And that wouldn't have happened unless he got handed over. That's why he came. So, you remember it says Jesus sweat in the like great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, Lord, if there be any will, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So yeah, did Jesus glorify God by the way he led? Uh, absolutely. But he glorified God even more in the resurrection. So God was glorified in the front end. God was glorified on the back end. But in between, it seemed like, you know. All right, but let me, so let me just read to you some scriptures because I want to get back to this concept of, of mercy. And if you have a concordance or you have a Bible software 
you can look this up for yourself. Uh, first, in the Old Testament, it says in Lamentations uh, chapter 3, verses 20 through 22 through 25, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When we see that word, my soul, or saith my soul, that means the real you deep down on the inside. Says, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. So, God's mercies are new, what? Every morning, according to verse 23. And then we can go throughout the Bible. I'm just going to read you some of these verses. It says, in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 9, 13 says, um, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners unto repentance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew 9, 27, this is the King James Version, all of these. It says, When Jesus had departed thence, Two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So what do you think? Again, they were asking. Here's an example. Two men that are blind. We just saw ten men that were lepers. What were they asking for? Notice they didn't ask right away for healing. They asked for mercy. Uh, Matthew 12, 7. It says, But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would have uh, not condemned the guiltless. Um, Matthew fifteen twenty two, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. It is interesting that whether we're talking about Canaan or whether we're talking about uh, right in uh, Israel, people from Israel, they're all asking for mercy. We don't really see that too much in the church today, do we? Matthew 17, 15 says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, and oftentimes he falls into the fire. Isn't that interesting, the story of the man with the lunatic son crying out, have mercy on me. You remember that story also is when he took him to the disciples and the disciples couldn't get the healing. And Jesus, uh, he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on me and help me. And what did Jesus respond to? He said, if you can believe. You know, I think there comes a point where we believe as far as we can believe. In other words, in and of ourselves, even in our spirit, we have a limited amount of strength that we, that we use from day to day. So maybe if you're struggling with money or health or, or something else or relationships or just a whole myriad of things, you pray and you use the faith that God has given you, uh, and you use it to the best of your ability how you know how. You pray to the best of your ability as you know how. But there comes a point, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this, where you go as far as you can go in your own strength, and then you're kind of done. You're kind of at the end where you need help. I remember, this was years ago, but I was uh, a kid, teenager, working in a gas station this is up in New Jersey. And it got really cold there during the winter time. And I remember that um, 
my, my dad also worked at this station uh, with me. He was like a, a manager, assistant manager. And I, I was working there as a kid trying to make some money. And I was working out there and it was so cold. And I got to the point where I had frostbite forming on my face. And my my mouth was kind of swollen because of the, I mean, just the, with the wind, the wind chill was just beyond what I had experienced before. And it got to the point where I had gloves where I was no longer capable of closing my hand around the uh, the money that I had. And I just needed to be inside where there was some heat for a while. And there was just a line of cars and I was just having trouble functioning. And I just remember looking around and thinking and feeling on the inside, you know, have somebody have some mercy on me. I can't, I'm no longer physical capable of being out here. I need some heat for a little bit. I need to get warm. And just remember my dad coming and uh, telling me to go inside. And it, it was terrible. It really was. And it, that's just an example of needing help. And it stuck with me how sometimes you just need to rely on someone else because you've gone as far as you can go. Well, spiritually speaking, the same thing happens where you have a certain amount of strength. I know the Bible says that if you uh, fall in the day of adversity, you, you know, you don't have strength. <laughs> and, and yeah, we can resist adversity, but there comes a time where we've done all that we know how to do. And sometimes we listen, the lie becomes bigger than the truth in our own heart. We make some wrong decisions, and then you're in a place where you're completely relying on the mercies of God. And this is a great place to know, and a great time to know that his mercies are new every day. So, you see these um, uh, scriptures here, where it says, uh, people, Matthew twenty thirty one is another one with the blind men. Uh, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 47, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, The Son of David, have mercy on me. And so this, this might be a place that you're in right now, where you've done what you know how to do. You've believed as far as your belief can take you. And you need to rest on the mercy and compassion of God. This is where I really want to encourage you today, because... I know that when you try and fail and try and fail, you can only your soul can only go so far before you just feel so beaten down. And if you're not around the right people, if you're not getting refreshed, if you're not getting charged for whatever reason, maybe some of it or part of it's your fault. I don't know. But the thing to remember is you can still come to God and ask for mercy. I can go scripture after scripture after scripture. In which, a matter of fact, even we could look in the New Testament, and again, we hear so little about mercy today. But think about the greetings of Paul in his epistles, where he says, Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. In other words, that was a greeting. He was, he was wishing, sometimes we look at these like they're just words. We just repeat them. But the words have meaning. Grace is God's unearned favor. Right? It's what puts us in a position to be blessed. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. That's grace. It's God's honor and favor. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is you need to receive something from God that you've gone as far as you know how to go and you can go no further. That is one example of mercy. For example, in the book of Philippians, there was a man who Paul knew who had just worked himself to death to supply for, for the missionary um, for, for the missionary, I want to call it a goal, an objective, or God's battle plan. God had called Paul. He was like the ultimate apostle slash missionary, right? And he had needs. He was still a man. And so he was busy spreading the gospel wherever he went and helping build churches, helping teach the new believers. And he still needed food to eat. He still needed clothes on his back. All of those things wear out and need to be replaced. And so this man went above and beyond so much to the fact in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that the Bible says that he was sick nigh unto death. His name was Epaphroditus. Let me read this to you. This is chapter 2 of Philippians verse 25. It says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. That basically sums it up. In other words, this man was doing God's will. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all, he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. Now think about that. He was sick almost unto death. So this was a fellow believer, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. Don't you think Paul prayed for him? Well, absolutely. Was it God's will that he was sick? No, of course not. But what does it say there? God had mercy on him. And not also on him, but on me also. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And we skip down to the 30th verse. It says, Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his own life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. In other words, nobody was helping Paul, so this man basically just dug in and did it all himself, not regarding his own health. He probably wasn't eating right. He wasn't sleeping right. And that opened the door for sickness to come in. Why? Because he's living in a physical body. He raped what he had sowed, but he did it with the best of intentions. But what does it say there? God had mercy on him. Can you see that there is a point where you do all that you know how to do and you come to your end? But even when you come to your end, God is just at his beginning. You know, I heard that years ago and it stuck with me. When you're at your end, God is just at his beginning. And so when God had mercy on him, what do you think that means? In other words, he was healed. He was healed and restored. Okay, let's take a look at a few other things regarding the Apostle Paul. I'm reminded of Paul's own greeting. For example, when he spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2, it says, Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting, those words, grace, comma, mercy, comma, and peace. Those three things. Grace, of course, was saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Mercy, and of course, that goes with the scriptures I've already read on the mercies of God and peace, 
which can also be translated wholeness, soundness, peace encompassing everything, spirit, soul, and body. And then we see the same identical greeting again in 2 Timothy. To Timothy, my dear beloved son, in 2 Timothy 1-2, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace again from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So these are purposeful greetings, purposeful blessings, you might say, that he's putting in print. And I'm sure that if he's wishing this to Timothy in print, he's also praying these things upon him as he prayed for him, just in, as part of his prayer life. And notice again here in Titus, another believer that Paul wrote to, Titus 1.4, he says to Titus, my own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace. Again, we see that phrase there, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we, we can go on and look at these scriptures, and I think the more that we look at them, a lot of times it's almost like when you go into, when you're driving down the road and you pass the same things every day, you can become a little blind to them. You don't even realize they're there. And it's kind of like that when we're reading certain words, especially maybe if you're reading in the original King James Version. I guess in any version, it really comes down to it, unless you're reading a paraphrase. But if you're reading a translation, you'll see these words are here, grace, mercy, and peace. And so the, the words have meaning to them. I don't think there's any word that's in the Bible that's there by accident. Let's put it that way. Maybe uh, a conjunction, something that adds two phrases together, maybe was missed in translation. But I would say other than that, that you can believe that this word is definitely, as the Bible says, God's word is forever settled in heaven. And if you want to know what God would say if he was here in person, look at the words of Jesus. And if you want to know what God was saying after the resurrection, then you have to look at the words of those whom he anointed and those whom he sent. And so it's, it's really interesting because I, I believe that there's things that we've missed in here. And I believe one of the reasons why is because... Just in day-to-day -day life, sometimes we look at things from a, a religious standpoint. Certain things have more meaning than others in the practical aspects or the practical side of life. And I just want to encourage you to consider that there is nothing that was written here that was meant to be anything other than practical. So let me take a few minutes. I'm going to read several scriptures in closing, and I just want to let these scriptures, you know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, the opposite of faith, which is doubt, fear, worry, and dread, all of those things come by hearing what we hear out in the world each and every day, whether it be through the news or something we read online or something we're watching on the television. All of these things contradict the victorious message that God has left for us. And it's so important to just renew how you think, renew how you're approaching life from time to time, because it's impossible to live in this world, just like it's impossible to go out in the heat of the day and not come back and be in need of a shower or taking a bath or cleaning yourself up. Just being here, you just get covered by these things. So or affect it to some degree. So let me read these scriptures to you, and I'm going to make a few brief commentaries in between them and just let these words encourage you. 
Psalm 34, 19. Again, we're talking about practicality, practical application. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Isn't that exciting? Not the Lord delivers him out of most of them or some of them. You know, people stop right there and think, yeah, well, I know people that weren't delivered. And, and, and there, again, that is that negative type of world type of view thinking that other people have. And if you see someone who is not delivered, well, look at these scriptures again. Let me keep on going. John chapter 15, verses 15 through 16. From now on, I call you not servants. This is the American King James Version. For the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I call you friends, for all things I have heard from the Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you should ask of the Father in my name he may give you. Okay, Luke chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. But rather seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. If you had known me, you should have known the Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long a time, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? In other words, if you see Jesus, if you hear Jesus, you're actually hearing the Father because Jesus himself said, the works that I do, it's the Father in me who is doing these works. It is the Father in me giving these words that I'm speaking to you. John chapter 15, verses 7 and 8 says, If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. See, you have something to do with that. So a lot of people are letting the words of what they're hearing on the TV and the news abide in them more than what Jesus said. And that's why they're not seeing the kind of results and the kind of fruit and the kind of overcoming type of end result that they're looking for. Again, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. See, there is a responsibility, something that you have to do. And don't make this harder than it needs to be. Again, let these scriptures just speak for themselves. John 16, verses 22 through 27 says, And you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man takes from you. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Till now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father, and in that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and believe that I came out from God. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, 
for I have overcome the world. What was the very first scripture I read? Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's what you have to think on. That's what you have to dwell on. Again, 1 John chapter 3, uh, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or various temptations. That word is also translated tests and trials. Knowing this, in other words, if you don't know this, it's hard to count it all joy, that the trying of your faith works patience or perseverance. Let patience or perseverance have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Again, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Do not err, my brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no fickleness. This is the American King James Version, neither shadow of turning. The King James Version uses the word variableness. In other words, God is good all the time, not some of the time. And the problems and the challenges that we're having haven't been sent by him. But I like to look at it this way, and maybe I can use a sport as an example of this. If you are a warrior, if you are a professional fighter, then the opponents that you face throughout your career aren't designed to, to send you packing, aren't designed to defeat you. You have to defeat them on your way to your the ultimate goal, which is of every fighter winning the title or winning a world championship. And we can look at these verses that I've just read in that light, in that test trials and tribulations are brought against us to defeat us. But in our own camp, in our own house, we are well equipped to overcome every type of adversity and every type of opponent we'll face throughout our career, which is kind of uh, an analogy of our time here that we spend on this earth, our lifetime. And so like a fighter who starts out his career maybe with little four-rounders and works up to facing the best of the best on his way to winning the championship, it's just like it says in the scripture I already read in John chapter 15. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and it shall be done to you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. In other words, bearing much fruit is winning. Bearing much fruit means overcoming. And so we can go through all these scriptures, and it's good to do this from time to time, because if you don't see the answer right away, if you don't experience deliverance in the most practical sense of the word, in the most practical definition, then perseverance or patience has to come to the forefront. Because without that, you just get discouraged and you give up. You quit. And God isn't glorified when you quit. He's only glorified when you overcome. And how do you overcome? What does it say? John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And so the Bible encourages us to fight the good fight of faith. It doesn't say fight the devil. It doesn't say fight demons. It doesn't say fight your friends. 
It doesn't even say fight the system. It says fight the good fight of faith. Faith is the only good fight which is mentioned in the entire Bible. And we have so many illustrations going all the way back to the book of Genesis on how God's people faced one adversity after another, but finally they came through. Yeah, there were a lot of rocky um, roads that they went through on the way, and a lot of times they missed it and they were set back because they made bad choices. But thankfully, this was the victory that overcame the world then, and this is the victory that overcomes the world now. We have a new and a better covenant established upon better promises. Our faith today is placed squarely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it also says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So there's never a good reason to be fearful or to get discouraged. But in order for these truths to stay alive and to be alive in your day-to-day life, you have to continually refresh yourself with the truth. All right, I hope that helps you a little bit. You know, a lot of people read these verses and they say, well, this doesn't mean this and this doesn't mean that. And they basically take all of the power out of these promises. And that makes me think of how the serpent was speaking to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. I'll read that to you quickly just so you have an idea of um, the other side of this, how people get talked out of believing and trusting and having confidence in what God said and what the scriptures say and what the promises say. It says in verse number one, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle, this is the American King James Version again, than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said to the woman, Yes, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Interesting. Yes, has God said questioning? Did he really mean what he said? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, in other words, the scriptures say, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In other words, he didn't really mean that. This really doesn't mean that. When the Bible says the Lord will deliver him out of them all, he really doesn't mean all, every single one. And then he will get you to look at stories that you may have heard or people that you may have known. And you don't know all of the details because you don't know what is in the heart of people. People miss it. Again, go back to the scriptures and you can see even the most godly of people have missed it. And sometimes it costs them their lives. People like Samson, for example, a good example, somebody that had an incredible um, mantle of power on his life and yet He made some very bad decisions that cost him his life, took years off his life. And, you know, nothing has changed from then to now. The devil still works in that area of thought, getting you, getting people, getting all of us to question, does the Bible really mean this? Surely this is too good to mean what it's actually saying. Surely we can't take the scriptures at face value. Surely this isn't referring to the here and now, but sometime way off in the future, in the sweet by and by. And then he went on to say the serpent in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, that your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so he actually puts forth a counter argument 
to take the truth out of that statement. And it's the exact same thing that's happening today. I'll leave you with this verse to consider that. Second Peter verse or chapter three, verse 16. This is the contemporary English version. It says the same thing in all the versions, but I'm just using this one because the English is just so plain. And here, uh, Peter is writing his epistle and he references Paul. And he says in verse 16, Paul talks about all these same things in all his letters. But part of what he says is hard to understand. Some ignorant and unsteady people even destroy themselves by twisting what he said. Notice that. And then it says they do the same thing with other scriptures too. In other words, they take something that was given to bring life and they twist it. So instead of working for them, it works against them. I know people do that with subjects like works all the time. In other words, you're never good enough to be blessed. You're, you're never steady enough. You're never disciplined enough. And it puts all the focus back on you. It's even the same thing with topics like prayer and faith. If you don't see an answer right away, you must be doing it wrong. And then the thought will come about how many people have had instant results. That's why I read the scripture from James today where it says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So you have to believe that going in because there'll be plenty of, of intellectual arguments that will come to the forefront to try and talk you out of that. Has God said that you'll be perfect and entire, wanting nothing? Doesn't that really mean that you'll have to wait until you leave this life and enter the next one? And that's exactly what Peter said. Unsteady people destroy themselves by twisting the scriptures. All right. I think that's about all for today. Hey, thank you for listening. If you haven't been to the main website already, that address is faithtestedbyfire.com. You can sign up there for updates. I will be back hopefully one more time before the election. Possibly not, maybe right after. So thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day. God bless. God bless.